And our reading today is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from verse 12, and we'll read down into chapter 2 and verse 11, and you can find this in the church Bible on page 1,159, page 1,159, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him, it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him 
Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. But we are not unaware of his schemes. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Zhongguo Xinyan Kualu. Who knows what that means? Happy New Year. Happy Chinese New Year. Um, there's a new dim sum shop downstairs, isn't there? Have you tried it? No, I want to try it. It's traditional to eat dim sum at uh, Chinese New Year. So, Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, I would like to start this morning with a little quiz. And uh, if we can put the first picture on, it's small. What bridge is this? Seven, the Seven Bridge. Yeah, very familiar bridge to me. Next one. Yes, the Golden Gate Bridge. Very good. Right, this one's a bit niche. Wow, someone said it there. Say it again. Penang, Malaysia. Who said that? Very good. Yes. That was niche, that one. Uh, next one. Sydney. Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yep. Iron Bridge. Everyone knew that one. Yep. Brunel's Bridge. Okay, well, folks, today the message is called Rebuilding Broken Bridges. We're in a series in Paul's letter, probably the fourth letter, uh, but in our Bibles it's called the second letter to the Corinthians. It's my favorite letter in the New Testament. And I have the choice now about what we preach on, so that's quite fun. Um, <laughs> Now, in this passage that we just read, uh, Paul spends some time explaining to the Corinthians why he's writing another letter instead of actually going to visit them. Um, so I'd like you to look up uh, this passage because we'll follow it through. Uh, it's not the easiest, um, but hopefully it will make sense to you when we've finished. A section of this church were very critical of Paul. In an, in an era and an age where status and power and boasting were paramount, Paul seemed very unimpressive as a speaker, as an apostle. Um, he had endured a lot of shame, as he says at the end of the letter. You know, he was beaten many times. Uh, he was imprisoned. He went through hardships, distress, Last week, uh, Andrew taught how he was suffering beyond what seems possible for a human being to suffer, mentally, physically, spiritually. And in this age, that seemed very, very unimpressive and shameful. Now, despite all this, Paul wants to rebuild bridges. He is totally committed to this church, even though they're extremely critical and in some ways dismissive of him. And in so doing, what Paul does is give us an example 
of how to respond to criticism, how to pastor people, and how to foster a healthy church. So those will be our three things that we'll look at this morning. First of all, how to respond to criticism, verses 12 to 7. Now, gospel people will receive lots of criticism, even within the church. Human beings have this uncanny habit of polarizing and undermining each other, arguing, dismissing each other. It's going to happen. Sometimes the criticism is, okay, it's fair enough because we've fallen short. Sometimes it's overly harsh and it's unwarranted. Let me, let me introduce you to a man called Charles Simeon. This man was pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge for 49 years. Pastor of one church for 49 years between 1771 and 1820. For the first 10 years, his congregation locked him out of the church. They locked their pews. They didn't like the fact that he was preaching from the Bible. And yet he kept going. <laughs> he kept going, he kept preaching the Bible, and his church was responsible for sending missionaries all over the world. Actually, the first missionary from the United Kingdom to Iran, Henry Martin, came from Charles Simeon's church. But nearly every minister that I've known has faced opposition. Yep, some of it is fair enough but some of it is unwarranted. But you might be facing it in your workplace right now or in your family circles. So I just hope that this next section here will help you. How does Paul respond to criticism? Well, first of all, verses 12 to 14, he examines his conscience. He says, this is our boast. He's actually being very ironic. The Roman world was a world of boasting and parading around like peacocks. Paul is saying this with, with quite a lot of irony. He's mocking the culture of boasting, actually. But he says, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relationships with you, in holiness and sincerity that are from God. What does Paul mean by his conscience testifies? All of us have a God-given conscience. If English isn't your first language, you might want to look up the word conscience in Google Translate. My conscience tells me that a particular thing is wrong and a particular thing is right. And it tells me that God knows that I know that it's wrong and God knows that I know that it's right. It's God's umpire within me. And it speaks with a voice independent to me. Chris, you just told a lie. Yeah, I feel awful that I just told a lie. I wish I hadn't done that. Guilty criminals have given themselves up because of conscience. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer, wrote a book called Crime and Punishment, which is all about the guilty conscience. On the other hand, martyrs like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a German pastor who stood up to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis and opposed them 
and it was even part of an assassination plot against Hitler for which he was executed days before the end of the Second World War, died with a clear conscience. Those were some of his, his last words. I don't need a Bible to hear the voice of my conscience. It's God's umpire within every person. But in prayer, I do need to listen to the voice of my conscience. And this is where a nighttime prayer uh, that's called the examen is a very effective way to pray. So at nighttime, okay, Lord, here was my day. Where did I hear you speak to me today? And would you speak to me now through my conscience? Is there anything that I need to repent of today before I bring the next day before you? Paul says that he examined his conscience, his inner moral compass, and his conscience was not condemning him in this instance. He hasn't wronged the Corinthians. His conscience is clear. He picks this up again in chapter 7, verse 2, which you can look at. If you want to read more about the conscience, there's a great book uh, by Christopher Ashe called Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. But I need to move on. The Corinthians had loaded criticism on him. They seemed to have felt that, that Paul was an indecisive, fickle little man who was able to say yes, yes, and no, no in the same breath. In other words, he said, oh, I'm going to come and visit you, and then he didn't. They, he had changed his plans. Now, Paul wasn't a perfect man. He was a sinner. But Paul explains in this passage, in chapter 2, verse 1, that actually another painful visit wouldn't have solved the problems in Corinth. He'd already made one painful visit, and he felt now, after all, that it was better to write. Now, in industrial relations, when there's conflict, sometimes a cooling-off period is necessary. And so it was here, maybe. Paul didn't want to throw more fuel onto the fire with whatever was going on in Corinth with another painful visit. Also, as we read in the last chapter, in Ephesus, from where he was writing, he was suffering. Some crisis had arose, and he felt under pressure, beyond his ability to bear, he says. It was really hard for him. And instead of the Corinthians empathizing with him and showing concern for him, they dismissed him as fickle. And their attitude to Paul was harsh. Paul examined his conscience. He sought God. God, would you show me if I've done anything wrong? He obviously talked to Timothy about it as well because he says our conscience testifies and he, he writes with Timothy. Timothy, do you, do you think our motives have been fickle? No, I don't think they have. And so the consciences of Paul and Timothy are clear. Now, how about us? How about you this morning? Maybe you've been accused of something. Maybe someone at work or at home is giving you a hard time. What do you need to do? You need to examine your conscience. Lord, would you show me? Is there something I need to correct here, apologize for? It's something good to do every day, actually. And then, Lord, I commit to you the day that I've just had. Would you bring to mind that anything that I need to repent of today. 
So examine your conscience. And then secondly, Paul has no retaliation in his writing, but he communicates clearly, verses 13 to 17. Verse 13, we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. Now, Paul could have disowned this group of Corinthians. They, they, they were being difficult and resentful. Paul could have used his authority as an apostle to, to have been manipulative, but he's not. All the way through here, he is winsome and gentle. He wants to boast about them. These people that he led to the Lord, he doesn't want to whinge about them. In the words of, of Simon Gibo, who was here two weeks ago, he chooses gratitude, not grumbling. He chooses faith, not fear. And in this, he's very like Jesus. Peter, in his first letter, says about Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he was insulted, he did not threaten revenge when he suffered, and he left his case in the hands of God who judges fairly. This is what Paul is also doing. He does explain himself. He does defend himself. But in his explanation, rather than retaliating or using counter-insults, he just explains himself clearly. I don't write to you anything that you can't read or understand. Look, verses 15 to 16, this is what I intended to do. This is what I wanted initially. I did want to come and visit you, but I just had to reconsider everything. And sometimes, folks, our best laid plans don't come to fruition. Sometimes we tell people we're going to do something, but actually we've got no intention of doing it. But here, and that is wrong, but here Paul did have the intention of visiting, but he, he re-evaluated, he genuinely did want to visit them, but circumstances just got in the way. We've had something like that actually this week. We plan to do a week of prayer uh, in the first week of Lent. Um, and we plan to have a prayer and pancakes evening on Tuesday and an Ash Wednesday thing on the Wednesday. But we've got a members meeting on the Wednesday and then something else was booked on the Tuesday. So um, it didn't, it's not coming to fruition. Uh, it's not that we say yes, yes in the same breath as we say no, no. It's just circumstances have got in the way. Now, how about you in your conflict situation? Are you retaliating? Are you avoiding? Have you closed down? My conscience tells me that I've done all those things at times. I'm sorry if I've done that to anyone here. It is said that in conflict situations, people are either like a rhinoceros or a hedgehog. The rhinoceros charges in and the hedgehog puts the spikes up in a conflict situation. But Paul doesn't do any of that here. He is intent on building bridges and restoring the relationship. He overlooks a multitude of sins with the Corinthian people. He chooses to lean in and not lean out and he does it in a gentle and winsome way because as he says, he has the spirit of Christ. And so do you. If you are a Christian, you do have the resources to handle conflict well and to do it better than you did last time. So take heart, folks. If criticism 
is overwhelming you. In Psalm 34, it says, God is close to the brokenhearted. He, he supports those who are crushed in spirit. So come to him with your conscience. Don't retaliate. Communicate clearly. Be gentle. Don't be like the rhinoceros or the hedgehog. Secondly, in this passage, we have an example about how to pastor people. Now, we're all called to pastor people, to bear one another's burdens, to point one another to Jesus, to, to encourage one another. And so there are lessons here for all of us. The first thing that Paul does as a pastor in verses 18 to 22 is he reminds people about the faithfulness of God. He says, my plans had to change, but God's plans don't. He is always faithful. In verse 20, he says, no no matter how many promises God has made, they're always yes in Christ. In other words, Scripture is full of the promises of God. And all of them have been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In the early pages of the Bible, there's a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That's what Jesus came to do, dying on the cross, stripping Satan of his power. And he's going to restore the world that we all want because he is faithful. We, last year, we had a series in the life of Abraham. God made promises to Abraham, one of which was, through you and your children, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Here above Bar, we have an example of that promise coming true, because how many, put your hand up if you were born outside of the UK, outside of the UK. Many in the balcony there. About a third of people here. We have the nations. We are a house of prayer for for all nations. And you know at the end of time, when the nations are gathered in, and all the languages and all the food and all the culture, Jesus Christ will stand and say, yep, God said all nations, and all nations it is, because he's faithful. Think of the promises of Jesus Christ himself to his disciples. He said three times, look, the Son of Man must suffer. It must be handed over to the chief priests and he will be killed. But on the third day, he will rise again. And so it is. The promises of God that we remember every Christmas, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. This is Jesus, and the son will be a light to the Gentiles. And his promise that he will come again, will come true. The world that we all want, the home that we all want, will come about because this God is faithful. This isn't a God who only loves you when you're good. God sent his son to die for you when you were very bad. And he who gave up his own son, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things, right? He's given us his spirit, says Paul in verse 22. He set his seal of ownership on us. He's put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
We have a foretaste of the age to come. If you're a Christian, it's not so much that you've made a decision to follow Jesus, but God has chosen you and put his spirit within you. Now, folks, maybe this week you need to share with some broken soul some of the amazing promises of God to encourage them, to pastor them, to remind them about the faithfulness of God. Maybe you can write an email, write a letter. People are often not faithful. Politicians are often not faithful. But he is, and his love never fails. So to pastor people, God, uh, Paul reminds them, reminds the Corinthians about the faithfulness of God. The second thing he does to pastor people is he works sacrificially for their joy. I love this verse, verse 23 and 24. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that was in order to spare you, I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. This really struck me this week. Why am I pastoring people here? Why am I standing here this morning? I'm working for your joy. What is the reason I do what I do? I'm working for your joy. And if you have the kind of relationship where you're helping someone else, you're working for their joy. Maybe it'll make a difference for you going to work tomorrow morning to get up and say to yourself, right, I'm going to work today for the joy of my colleagues. Even if you don't feel particularly joyful yourself, perhaps joy will come when you take that posture. Okay, I'm not here to suck the energy out of the place like the Dementors in Harry Potter. Quite the opposite. I am here to work for your joy. I am here to bring some of that summer into this winter because I have the spirit of Christ. So Paul reminds them of the faithfulness of God and he works for their joy. And then in the, the, the latter part of the passage that we read from verses uh, 5 to 11, Paul talks about how to have a healthy church. Um, let, let's read this again because uh, it seems a little bit tricky. Uh, verse 5, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you should forgive and comfort him. It seems, and of course we're reading uh, a letter and we're not hearing the other side. The, there was a correspondence between the Corinthians and Paul, but there was a man who clearly had caused grief, who had acted immorally. There was all sorts of things going on at Corinth. We read in the first letter, there was incest. There was someone sleeping with his own mother-in-law. There was all sorts of sexual sin in this port town. And one way to, to have a healthy church is not ignore sin, but deal with it. It seems like a lot of problems were caused by one particular man, verse 5, and this grieved Paul a lot. And he says, I, I wrote a letter out of great distress and anguish with many tears. 
And it seemed that Paul had instructed the church to discipline this man, not to condemn him and throw him out forever, but to expose the sin in hopes that this man would repent, which it seems that he did do. So they disciplined this man, they removed him from the fellowship, and they did this, the apostles, because they had a very, very high view of the church. Peter says, doesn't he, the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So it's very important that the church is pure, that it doesn't ignore sin but deals with it. If there's deliberate, unrepented sin, it can't just be brushed under the carpet. Don't know if you've ever had this kind of conversation. Look, you know it's wrong to leave your wife. Yeah, yeah, but we all sin, don't we? Is your marriage perfect? You know, he who's without sin, let him throw the first stone. You know, my marriage has been so difficult. I've met this new lady. She's my soulmate. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but Jesus Christ would never forsake or leave his bride. Uh, would you still say that you're a follower of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, of course I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, it, it might seem pretty judgmental to exercise discipline here, but the purity of the church and the witness of the church is so important that churches can't just bury their heads in the sand like an ostrich when there is unrepentant sin. So here in Corinth, it seems like the majority responding to Paul's letter voted to remove this person from the fellowship. And this is why we have membership at uh, Above Bar Church because the church is meant to be participative. It's not meant to be a show where people at the front do everything. We're all together encouraging one another, 50 one another uh, instructions in the New Testament. We make decisions together. And naturally, we all perhaps shy away from this commitment. It seems really heavy. But I want to, to encourage you this morning, if you've been coming to Above Bar, commit to Above Bar. Every church is struggling at the moment with commitment. But we have membership here. Uh, I have a few membership forms here. Uh, if anyone would like to come and explore this with me uh, afterwards. So Paul takes sin seriously. He deals with it. But also, to have a healthy church, we need to have forgiveness at our core. Verses 7 to 11. It seems that this man is penitent, that he feels terrible. He's sorry. And the purpose of discipline is always to restore and to rebuild broken bridges. Verse 7. Now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him. Don't make him feel terrible. Bring him back. Put your arms around him. Restore him. He wants to be restored. Reassure him. Reassure him that I love him. The gospel, folks, is all about forgiveness. All of us screw up. All of us often hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness too much, and it thwarts us from building the bridges, but Paul wants this community to be a place of forgiveness. So, folks, what have you taken away this morning from this passage? Three words stand out to me. 
three C's. Conscience. Will you make a regular practice of examining your conscience? Maybe in the evenings. Commitment. Take one of these. Join the church. Christ. Think about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had a bad week. Your conscience isn't clearing you. It's condemning you. You've screwed up this week. Well, so have I. Come to Jesus. He stands ready to forgive you and to restore the broken bridge between you and God. Don't wait till you're better. Come now. He wants to clear your conscience. He wants to present you right before God. This is the heart of the gospel, that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive you your sins, and he'll present you right before God. And maybe if you have been forgiven here this morning, then you need to fully forgive someone else here. Don't feast on your own skeleton. Release them. Release yourself. We don't want Satan to outwit us, folks. We're not unaware of his schemes.